This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome, of course, incoming assistant professor of teacher education, languages, education, and multilingualism for the University of Buffalo Graduate School of Education. She's also, of course, a master teacher educator to uh, quote Jane Elliott, Dr. Tasha Austin. Hi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you bringing me on. It's so good to be in conversation with you. I feel like I'm in conversation with you as a Nubian, but not directly. So this is this is dope. I know I'm I'm usually lurking on office hours because I'm like that's his space I don't want to be you know unless I pop in but for the most part I'm in the chat starting trouble and uh, that's where I like to be it's my time to put my hair down but I'm fascinated I've been trying for the last three years to learn Spanish because I feel like um that and Chinese will be two languages that we gonna have to learn uh for our self-preservation especially if we got to dip out somewhere and then I'm like, when I get to the continent, of course, there's like a hundred languages that we got to learn and uh, dialects and things. But you are like a master linguist. And I wanted to, before Drew was asking you some questions, we're going to get to those in a, in a minute. But what was your introduction into languages and how many languages can you speak fluently? Yeah, so uh, linguists would absolutely not claim me. Uh, so as a language educator, there was a, there's a text that talks about linguistic imperialism that kind of traced when linguistics splintered off to linguists versus everybody else who studies or is a researcher of languages. So that was a very strategic move. Okay, okay. well, educate me because I, I yeah. use that with a certain understanding and I'm clearly not, I don't know what I'm talking about. So tell me. Yeah. So, you know, as a part of really imperialism and, and really the splintering of power from Western Europe around the world, there's very strategic decision. Uh, one of the conferences, you know, over in the UK, I said, hey, you know what, we got to rein this thing in. We can't have everybody having command over what's considered linguistics. Right. So let's say linguistics and then let's say applied linguistics. And that was a way to kind of demarcate and bring to a lower status anyone who's studying language that's not disembodied from the actual humans who are using the language. So then, you know, linguists, there's a big chasm in the field about who's a linguist and versus who's a sociolinguist or who's a raciolinguist. And they've got all these prefixes to kind of remove and to lower the status of folks who refuse to separate the practice of languaging from the bodies who enact it. So I definitely fall on the, the side of, you know, you're not a true linguist, you know, you're just studying the way actual humans use the language. I, I'm definitely on that side of things. So Interesting. So do you speak different languages? <laughs> I just, she's like, is it yes. languages? Oh, yeah. No, I do. I, I'm fluent in Spanish and English. And I studied uh, Latin for several years and beginning metanature. Right. Um, but I have what they call receptive bilingualism um, across romance languages because of my level of, I guess you could say, expertise in Spanish. I lived in Spain and taught Spanish for nine years. Um, and so what happens is receptive bilingualism speaks to your ability to interpret what you're getting in that language, but then you respond maybe in a, in a different language. So if you were to speak to me in Italian, I could speak back to you in Spanish or English. You know, if you were to speak to me in Portuguese, likely the same French, 
is a little bit stickier. I can read French very well, but in terms of actually, you know, kind of interpreting it auditorily, it's a little bit more challenging because their system, their phonetic system is very different. Yeah. So, Doctor Doctor Austin. So, what was it? High school Spanish? Because I remember being in high school Spanish and um, getting kicked out a lot. Uh, Mrs. Puente Dewani would kick me out all the time because I was in the back um, having fun. That was me, class clown. Just, Karen Hunter, get out! And I'd be like, okay. Um, so I it did, I didn't I didn't absorb it. You know, even though we did go to Spain um, junior year, I went to Spain and France. Uh, it's a school trip. Uh, had a lot of fun, but everybody spoke English, so it was like, like like I had to be immersed. What was it for you that made you want to immerse yourself in Spanish in particular? Yeah, that's amazing, first of all, that you were abroad in high school. That's yeah. amazing. That's I, I want to say that it was wasted on a 16-year-old. I feel like, yes, my 16-year-old self was not evolved enough to appreciate going to the Louvre going to uh Castilian, you know, when he do the clapping and the and you know, everybody's drinking wine. I wasn't evolved enough to really absorb the art, the 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 culture and to see African. Like I didn't know my African self enough to see myself in all of these places because we were there. We we existed. So I'm like it's sometimes this 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 knowledge is wasted on on folk who are not in a space where they can absorb it enough to then put it back out you know, it's like digested and then put it back out so people can also want to know it. So for you, what was the entry point? So that's my fight. That that name you dropped, I said, go ahead, drop the names. Name all the names they threw you out of class. They should have been making <laughs> the learning so incredible that you could not resist it. But anyway, yes. um, to throw you out of class, that that's why you think you were not evolved enough. You are absolutely evolved enough, right? But you just need to be prepared. And that is the job of a language educator. So that is my fight. So now you got me. You got me ready to go. But, <laughs> but my own entry point, um, you know, I came up in Hudson County. So I came up you know, in the shadow of Ellis Island, Statue of Liberty, all the things. And um, Jersey City rivals New York every year for like the most diverse on the on the planet, right? And so I came up with folks in my classes who they were from countries I didn't know existed. Um, and that was the norm. Um, you didn't know who you were in the presence of until deep into your, your time spent with them because you might think that they were Black and they were Dominican. You might think that they were you know, um, from India and they were Guyanese. So over time in a beautiful context like that, you really come to have this deep fascination, appreciation, interest in cultures and languages. And so uh, the pain of my journey is that that never was directed inward. So I always wanted to know about languages and cultures, but through US public schooling as a black American, you're made to think that is other other people have languages and other people have culture, right? And you similar, right, to, I guess you could say, white Americans, you might not think you have any of that. But as a white American, you would typically say, yes, I'm just normal. But as a Black American, you're kind of made to believe that you're just void of these cultural things, right? That's, that's what those folks have. I'm just, I'm just Black. Right, so that was very much the experience coming up. And so as much as I was interested in languages and cultures, I never really thought to turn it inward. And so for the particular area that I came up in, it was predominantly Puerto Rican and Dominican. 
And so most of my friends from the music, from the dancing, from the food, from the religious, you know, all the things, it was all in Spanish. So it was a very kind of uh, expected, I don't want to say natural because definitely socially derived, but an expected end for me to get an interest in Spanish, the language and the culture. Um, but it wasn't cultivated. Like I had to fight for it. I had to fight for it in high school where they said, no, you can't go to Spanish three. You're not a native. And they just denied me. I had a perfect average. No, you can't. It was, it was a fight. Yeah, it was a fight in college. I got to college and they said, well, this is multi-pronged, right? I got to college and if you take entrance exams in languages, usually the variety of the language that they'll present to you is the imperial variety. So my entrance exam was given to me in Castilian Spanish, so Spanish from Spain. So mm. everything that I would, you, you, you feel me, yeah. Drew? Yeah, I know that. Yeah. So everything I was used to hearing, I was like, hmm. And the whole like uh, context of what I was supposed to interpret to answer the question was about un coche, un coche, un coche. And if you're around Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, es un carro. Nunca se dice un coche. Like, what is a coche? A coche what is, is a, un coche, yeah. A coche is a baby carriage. So I'm supposed to interpret this entire story about the car. And I'm like, that don't make sense. It's a so, you know, getting into college, they were like, well, you didn't make the language cutoff. So I had to go petition the dean, do a full presentation to plead my case to be able to travel abroad. So it's been a fight every step of the way. Uh, only to get to my doctoral studies and begin to write a paper. And they're like, well, why are you interested in languages? And I'm like, well, you know, because I'm interested in the cultural. And I just, I had an epiphany. Like I was looking outside when I could have been looking inside this whole time. Mm -hmm. And from there, I've just like, I've been nonstop because now I'm like, oh no, we got to fix this. I love the fact that your doctoral work brought that out for you like that, that, that feels like, well, that's why you become a doctor, right? Like that, that's that next level. Like you hit into the, into the, the next realm of like understanding when, um, when you were talking about the difference and the nuances of, of language, depending upon like how you hear it or whatever. Um, my ex is Dominican and I would always ask him, I was like, why are you struggling with what this person is saying? It was like Mexican people speak Spanish differently than people from, from Spain, than people from Dominican. It was like, it was like my Mexican Spanish sucks. And I was like, really? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I, I always wondered that for my friends who are like my, the friends of my, the ones of my boys that we all travel together, the one, the, the guys who actually speak Spanish, because we spend a lot of time in the Caribbean and we spend a lot of time in Latin America um, and, you know, less time in, in Europe now that we're older, like we would just depend on them the whole time. It's like, yo, what are we doing? Because all I know is how to ask for the Wi-Fi, right? Like, where's the Wi-Fi? What, give me the code, right? Um <laughs> But like traveling with other people makes you so lazy as it relates to, to, mm -hmm. to language. Where have you been where you were using Spanish or you were using your ability to interpret romance languages where you felt the most like, not fluent, but also just like communal, like part of the, the, the global, like a global citizen where? I had to tell you, my one of my biggest fights is that, you know, we travel the globe for something that we have right here at home. And I really, I have an issue with the way that we depict studying world languages, particularly in K-12 spaces, because what you're saying to this young child who's maybe from, you know, a lower SES is like, if you don't have the funds 
to travel for pleasure. And if you're not going to open a business and use the business language of French, like this is not for you. Mm-hmm. And we say that so early that we really cut off a large amount of the population who already has the linguistic prowess to, yeah. number one, become the next generation of language teachers, but to number two, just affirm who you are. And so for me, like when I think about communal use of, of language, most of it has actually been at home. So like I've wow. lived, I lived in Spain for a year, you know, I've traveled to Puerto Rico, I've traveled to Mexico, you know, but in terms of feeling like blackness is mm. in the way that I'm languaging, which there's an incredible book that really turned me on to this. It's uh, Speaking Blackness in Brazil. And I know off, off air, you were talking about Brazil and I was holding myself together. Karen, I didn't talk about the Brazil thing until we came back oh, on. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that text, Speaking Blackness in Brazil by Dr. Uju Anya, who is a polyglot, I think six or seven languages fluently. She's half Trinidadian, I believe, and half Nigerian. But she followed five, I believe, of her study abroad students. She took them every year to Brazil. And they were all Black students, all African-American students. And just looking through their eyes at the experience of how they came to know themselves because they were in this Black country mm-hmm. as they were studying Portuguese, I was just like resentment doesn't even cover it meanwhile i'm over here in spain and they're trying to prick me up pick me up as a sex worker mm-hmm. i'm in spain at 19 years old and they're chasing me out of the 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 subway station saying you can't sell your stuff here this is the experience i'm having at 19 yeah. because the languages typically that are centered are white varieties of imperial languages so you know, me being downtown Jersey City, like at a quinceanera dancing bachata or something is the most communal I felt sure. using Spanish, you know, not when I was abroad at all. You know, this is interesting you say that because I know for me, um, I wasted a lot of my parents' money um, doing study abroad when I was at Morehouse. I was in Nice for a summer, but it was when I got to Martinique that I really gave a shit. Like I was traveling with my, with my best friend when we were in Nice and I was like, he's fluent. I'm good. Like, I just need to know how to order, how to order some beer and some drinks um, and to holler at these dudes. And it wasn't that many to holler at anyway. And so, um, but then I got to Martinique and I was like, yo, okay. Everybody's black. Let me, let me dig in, right? Like everybody, I'm at the post office and people are, and, and everybody's black and I'm trying to send my letters. Like I really didn't really dig in to, to, to French until I got to Fort de France. And it was a game changer for me. I got home and didn't use it because I came, flew back home to Atlanta and with nobody speaking French, nowhere that I could go to, that I could see. But I feel you on that in that, language is so accessible to us if we actually use it, particularly when we're younger. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't want to, you know, fly in the face of literature or whatever, but please don't ever limit yourself and think that you've hit some special age where it's not going to happen. That's absolutely Mm -hmm. false, right? It is about the utility of it. It is about the opportunities for it. It is about, you know, realizing and self-actualizing in these different spaces, the same way you said, well, now I have a purpose. Yeah. Right. That will drive the way that you approach language learning and particularly when it's removed from these cold, institutional, nationalistic 
settings that are really, instead of using language for what it is, which is a communicative tool to kind of kind of bring the whole of your, your ancestry and your life and worldviews with you to a particular context and have exchanges, instead of using it like that within the institutional context, you know, language is used as like just an extension of the nationalizing arm, which is to push propaganda, right, about hierarchies of people. We call it world languages, and it's only languages of Western Europe. Western Europe, right. Plus China and Japan sometimes, right? So how is it a world language? And you're really talking about a handful of white Western countries. That didn't even even start everything uh but yet we're standing here speaking english dr tasha austin is here we're talking more than languages drew mccaskill's here as well i want to welcome in Lindsay, Lindsay smith who is usually behind the cameras directing things but she had a question so pop in hi um so i was thinking about everything that you're saying i'm learning spanish now it's a little slower i have a spanish teacher who is american with nigerian parents he lives in bolivia and his primary work is to preserve the languages, the local languages throughout Bolivia, Peru, also Brazil. And he was speaking to us, and you've touched on this, but I'm just was struck by what he said that you'll go to a lot of these rural communities and places where he's meant to preserve the language and the culture and the history, but we'll find that there's no like running water. And so that will become the project. So he teaches us Spanish so that he can get running water because that is just simply a more dire need than preserving the language of an entire people in an instant in a day. Um, And at the same time, he was telling us that a lot of the folks there feel this kind of shame about having an attachment to their local language and will defer immediately to the colonizer's language, in this case, Spanish, which is a perfectly fine language, but like there are a lot of pockets of local languages that are getting lost and they'll drink Starbucks coffee, for example, and not like the local coffee beans all to be separate from that. So I'm just, I'm one, I would love to hear you talk more about this because I think sometimes when we think about Mexican Spanish being different from Dominican Spanish being different from Spanish spoken in Spain and people will characterize it as, oh, that's hard to understand or this is bad Spanish. They think that that's kind of just some thing to say, but like hearing my teacher talk about people's behaviors and shame of their roots in their home countries because of it, you don't, we don't all see that because we're, we're on Zoom right now. We're not all in Bolivia actually seeing that. Um, and I had a second question about Latin, but Maybe I'll just stop here. <laughs> right. she, and she came in talking about Salway Magistra. Salway! Oh. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. Can I come in TV? I love it. I love yes. it. Dead language. Um. Dead language. Okay. Good. <laughs> but listen, so, okay, here's what's interesting about um, what you shared, Lindsay. I think we know intimately what's happening with your Spanish teacher, but we don't make the connections. And I really do place a heavy part of that blame on the school system and the way we, w- we learn all languages because English is a world language. So if we start right there, you can think about how we're, we're groomed to believe that certain languages stand apart and above from everything else. You take English and then maybe if you have the right advocacy and access, maybe you could take a world language later. And that world only includes the Western empire, right? So it starts right there. And when you think about wow, what must it be like to like have this indigenous way of just preserving who you are and and like, you know, heritage and all of that and to feel ashamed of it. I know that that is very much the case as a black American. People don't really compare it that way, right? Because we put English over there and we put world languages over here, but that's ideology that separates them. These are all world languages. So if we think about 
the fact of how many of us code switch. That is linguistic shame, right? That's a part mm -hmm. of us. Now, my argument to kind of counter that is sometimes we're just intentionally being in a space the way we want to show up in a space, right? It's not always, I'm so ashamed of the way that I language my life. Sometimes it's like, this is where I'm putting up this barrier and this is all you're getting from me. And I recognize that. But in terms of a legitimate belief that you can't access jobs, you can't access housing, you can't access degrees and credentialing, all based on the way that you choose to language your existence, that is linguistic shame. Hmm. And we're, we're groomed to carry that, even though many of us resist and subvert in really brilliant ways, but we're, we're kind of like brought up in the institutional setting to carry that same shame. Only difference being, as Karen already pointed out, we speak the colonizer's language to an extent, which means that, you know, our ability to navigate in the colonizer's language doesn't necessarily prevent us from access maybe the same way as those smaller, more rural Bolivian indigenous, because I guess they wouldn't even be using the word Bolivian if it were them, um, communities. Facts. Facts. Um, and that leads to the the tweet that you posted uh, that Drew was talking. Thank you, Lindsay, for that. 866-801-8255. Uh, Dr. Tasha Austin is here. You know, and as you're, as you're laying this out, I'm, I've been... Um, you know, since I was in college playing with language, I've had the um, the brother that teaches Gullah Geechee at Harvard, which is hilarious to me. Um, you know, my, my, my mother, my grandfather was Gullah Geechee. You know, there's a whole language. And then you, you have the diaspora of Creole Patois in Jamaica, where we on plantations had to figure out how to communicate in a tongue that was not taught to us. They didn't teach us the subject verb agreement, syntax, all of that. We weren't, we were, uh, it was illegal to read, illegal to write. Right. So, so the way in which we took a language and shifted it, um, much the way the Latin language, the Romans took whatever, you know, isn't that what everyone has done, you know, from place to place, to places take a language and twist it and make their, make it their own. Even Portuguese is a, I think a bastardized version of something else that came before it. And this is just what human beings do. They adapt. Um, but yet you're, you're saying they attach shame to it because if you don't speak it this way and that Castilian lispy bull crap, um, I, I was taught that Colombians speak the most perfect Spanish, not the Spanish, which I think is interesting as well. But uh, Dr. Austin, what, what, what do you say about that? I think it's really funny about like the the battle of who's the most perfect particular in the era of Francia Marquez, where it's like, oh, you thought you were shifting from one white nation to another, but surprise, like Colombia's black. Um, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get, right? Like that is the subversion of it all. That's what you get. The more you try to suppress a people, the more you try to subjugate them, like the brilliance of the way that we're able to navigate and use fugitive practices, not just to survive, but to always be ahead is just beautiful. Um, but in terms of like the the belief that, you know, like the, like it's not a list that they have. There's a real reason that they do that. They take it from the Greek and the theta and there's a reason they, you know, so there's a reason that they- so, can, we, can we, wait, wait, before you finish. <laughs> I have a, 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 a dear friend now who's from Egypt and the the amount of words that are in Arabic that are also in Spanish because the Arabic came first and they conquered and dominated the way the Moors did and way before that, the Carthage. Anyway, I don't want to talk about Africans' domination of Italy and all Spain and everything. Mm -hmm. But yes, there was that. Uh, it's interesting to me. So is there Spanish without Arabic? 
No, not in the way that we know it. Not I at all in the way to, that we know. Clear it. that up, y'all. Yeah, it's it's well. So the funny thing is, like, I feel like teaching, educating has driven me to all of these um, epiphanies, right? Like I said, I'm not the traditionally trained linguist, but I have a lot of insights and approaches to language teaching and research that a lot of trained linguists would never take, but it's from experience, right? It's a very bell hooks kind of approach from, from my actual work in the classroom. That's where I develop theories. And then I research them to see if there's any merit to them. And what you're talking about, about the Arabic influence, you know, I lived in Spain and I was in the South of Spain and the flamenco, the castanuela, all of that good stuff, but not did it occur to me the way that that influence permeates linguistically until I was teaching in Jersey City. Why? Huge Egyptian population. You're sitting mm. in a class of 30 plus students and as a good educator, right? Not because I'm like, you know, some academy trained linguist, but as a good educator, this is a decade ago, you have Egyptian students who are not proficient yet in English, but are who are sitting in your Spanish class. And so the goal then becomes, why do they care? The goal then becomes, what is the point of connection that I can leverage to ensure that this is accessible and meaningful for them? Because frankly, if I don't have a purpose for doing, like English is going to take precedent, right? We know we're in an English predominantly speaking country. So I'm in the Spanish class, yeah, whatever. I have things to do. I'm gonna turn my brain off until I get back into math or ELA. And so what I began to do was to look for those connections and sure enough, it wasn't just connections, it was everything. It was 800 years of the Moors having had reign over the entirety of the Iberian Peninsula. And furthermore, it, it was in the architecture, it was in the language. Everywhere you looked, it was like they put lipstick on mosques and called them cathedrals. Like they didn't even really, because everything was so beautiful and advanced, even their wanting to erase the influence of North Africans, they couldn't bear to do it because it was too incredible. And so they put a stained glass window and kept it pumping. Like they didn't even try to seriously uproot the beauty of what the North African folks left there because it was just too amazing. And so my lessons ended up coming from posting images and showing the music, right? You're listen to the vocalizations. Listen to the vocalizations of those uh southern Spaniards, right? They don't want to tell you they're <laughs> Romani nomadic people. No, the southern Spaniards, right? And you end up finding that this everything that they love, I know it's going to sound familiar in a minute. Everything that they love about being Spaniards is not about Spain. It's African. All right. It's African. <laughs> right. So, Dr. Tasha, let me ask you this. Um, I'm thinking about the next the I, I know you said that we all can that we all can learn a language, but I'm also thinking about the next generation of young folks. Right. Like, how do we make that connection for them for if they are learning Spanish or if they are learning Portuguese or they are learning um, French or they are learning of these other languages? How do we make that connection for them that? I didn't get in Nice, I got in Martinique. Like how do we get that for them so that when they're listening for it, they make the connection to the diaspora? Because I feel like language is another one of those ways that if we really connected linguistically, that our connection to the diaspora would shift and change almost miraculously. Beloved, that's it. 
<laughs> that's it. That's really my fight, right? At the end of the day, like I'm, I'm going about it in a research academic way, right? I've published mm -hmm. papers about anti-blackness in language curricula. I've mm -hmm. published about, you know, um, eradicating linguistic imperialism and anti-blackness and world language teacher preparation. So I'm, I'm pushing in that way, but we know those mm -hmm. papers get circulated among a few people. There's $42 if you want to download it as a layperson, right? Yeah. It's, it's not really what's doing the work. So my work is in preparing those who will teach those babies, but also in the work that I do with my own child. It's also in the way that I show up in the world, right? And it's in the way that I push for across education for us to stop restricting all the multimodal extra linguistic representations of Black people around the world. So what I mean by that is if we take it back to what Karen said about all these restrictions, you can't read, you can't write, you can't do this. It's all purposeful. It's all about maintaining the racial hierarchy. Yeah. But we are brilliant, right? And so, so much of what we communicated was extra linguistic. It was yeah. beyond the language. You know, I think about Chris Smalls and how he doesn't have to say a thing. Look at how he shows up in the world, right? Look at what he's wearing. This is how he shows up and he's giving you a whole message with his mouth closed. I think back to Francia Marquez as well. There's a reason that she shows up in the kente cloth the way that she does. We are telling messages through our hair, through our fashion, through our dance, through our media, through there's so many ways that we're getting the job done. My fight in the in the small space that I'm in is get out the way. Like my argument is I'm not asking you to do anything extra on behalf of black folks. What I'm saying is stop misrepresenting the world as it is. Yeah. The world is black. You're just misrepresenting it. Let's talk about, can you stick around? I don't know if you have something to do. All right, because I do want to delve into Brazil, which has the largest um, number of black people anywhere in the world outside of the continent itself. And we, yep. and it's and they're under siege. They're literally under siege by a government that wants to kill them. Dr. Tasha Austin is here. Drew McCaskill is here. And we're talking with language expert, professor extraordinaire, uh, Dr. Tasha Austin who also will be having regular conversations in Nubia around this very topic that we're talking about. And I realize that there are thousands of people uh, in this space that was created uh, about a year and change ago called Narrative, which was an offshoot of In Class with Car that evolved into this thing called Nubia that is about 10 months old. And I'm always wondering how people got there. Did, how, what, what inspired you to, to come in and bring, bring your brick? Man, prayer and supplication. <laughs> I was a year, maybe, maybe less than a year into my doctoral program um, when I found uh, the in class with Car, just like on YouTube, and I was just like, "Who is this? What is it?" Like, it drew me in immediately, right? Because I'm in my program and I'm saying things like, "I need an Africana grounding. I need Black studies," and they're like, mm, "We don't do that, right?" So like, it was all provide what. Jehovah Jireh. Yeah. But me pulling all the books, reaching out to people, frankly, like I always say, I went to Twitter University because I feel like if it wasn't for Twitter, I wouldn't have found folks who could at least drop titles for me. But then it became every Saturday, I could expect hours and hours of instruction. Whereas sometimes in my physical class I was in, I could sit there for three hours and not get 10% of that. So from there, I, I would have gone wherever y'all led at that point, but then narrative came and then Nubia came. And what I realized, kind of like what I was talking to Lindsay about um, off air is that 
things that were not so interesting or enticing to me before, I was consuming like rapaciously because it was cloaked in blackness. And then I was like, okay, I care now. So, you know, I was like this text, I always say the education of blacks in the South is this thick history text. And I couldn't believe it. Every time I sat down to read it, I was like, I can't believe I'm reading this and like not taking breaks and scanning social media because the way it was presented, I was at the center of it. How could I not? You know, you make mm -hmm. revolution irresistible. Well, thank thank you. I, I don't know like what percentage of people come from listening to the radio show, but I do know that the goal is to fish in a in a to to draw people in who are about building a future that we want to live in, and maybe not even the future that we get to live in, but the future that our children's children get to live in. But it requires a commitment right now. Uh, it requires a deprogramming right now, the things that we thought we knew. And, and it is our responsibility to know right things, like to not be okay, to not be blissful in our ignorance, but to, to question and challenge all the things we've been taught, including the languages that we speak and why and how, you know, this is good and this is bad, you know, and to, to center ourselves, to love ourselves in the midst of it. Cause that's the only pathway to freedom in my opinion. So I'm grateful that I'm glad you're there. I was, I was in the office. I was, I was like, this woman is off the, let me reach out. Cause we need to have this conversation on the radio before she gives. And I also wanted to see, you know, because anybody that's going to present in this space, because we, you know, we do these live streams, but it's not like a classroom. It's a conversation. Like you, to your point, I needed to know that you could do this. So, uh, you have, <laughs> you have passed the, the test that, that you didn't know was being given. Um, Drew asked a question off mic, uh, or commented on a, on a tweet. And I want to come back to that. Cause it was the thing that we were going to lead with. So I want to, uh, you had this um you had this response um on twitter because I, I i feel like some days i go to twitter school too but charles preston was talking about on twitter like that going to brazil he felt a lot of shame as a black american because people in brazil black folks in brazil there were all these murals of martin Luther king and harriet tubman and george floyd um and what the disconnect for us as people who are black who are living in America is like all of this disconnect around sort of the historical and you know political context of our connection to the other black folks living um living in other places and how and how language could be such a a, a bold tie to that. I think about um you know, for better or worse, there is amazing work that is being done around racial justice in this country. There are blueprints that could be helpful in other places that the biggest, the biggest disconnect is that they're over there, we're over here, and there's not like this seeing of each other. What you just talked about is I don't care because I don't see myself centered in it, but 56% of the population in Brazil is Black. Right. We think about, you know, we're 14 percent of the population in the U.S. And we talk and I'm always talking about like one in one thousand black men will be killed by law enforcement in these United States of America. Every 23 minutes, a black man is killed in Brazil, mostly by police. Brazilian police kill six times more people in the than than the police in the United States kill 
in 2019 and 2020, 75% of their victims in Brazil are black. Like, that disconnect that we don't even see that over there and there's a blueprint of at least the beginnings of some of the things that we that we could see i wonder if language could be that that thing that kind of begins to connect us yeah that's that's a lot and those stats are really heavy to digest um but i think a few things are happening one the first thing i hear is empire right i want us to even even uh, the tweet, the original person who put out the tweet, I think I, I never want to deny somebody's feelings. So if shame is what came up, shame came up. However, uh, we have to rightfully locate the power of empire. And so frankly, anything that's being exported out of the United States is going to have a larger impact in, in these countries that don't have as much reach as the US empire, right? Which mm -hmm. is declining. Right. I don't know if you all have noticed, but I see a lot more Asian representation in everything from movies to music to right. So you can see the power and how that plays up in the way that we see or don't see things. So, you know, if you think of how much of, you know, maybe civil rights leaders and whatnot maybe are better represented in Brazil than maybe us knowing about the moves that they've made in their history and how we're connected. Part of that, I think we need to credit just to the to the power of empire and exporting uh, what they frame as American culture, which we also know is black culture, right? So I, I just think that there's a part of that that I, I hope that uh, the person who tweeted actually can kind of like feel a little bit more calm about like, don't really make it totally about your own ignorance. But then the second part of that in terms of how can we see each other more and what role does language maybe have to play in that. I think, again, it goes back to what's bigger than language. And I think language educators play a key part in that because back in the day when I was trained, it was like two big C's, communication and culture. And it was clear that culture accounted for half of what you were doing in those settings, no matter what language you were teaching, right? Latin, Spanish, whatever. But in practice, and we know that this happens across every discipline, what is actually getting you the high scores as an educator? What is getting the, the, the students high scores on their tests? It's not the culture part, right? It's the grammar, it's yep. the accent marks. And so it doesn't matter like what we say out of our face, it matters what the assessments are and how we're actually rewarding the practice in the classroom. And so as much as I am a proponent of language, I know the power of language to connect people, to help us see who we are and to trace ourselves across time and around the globe. I'm just as much a proponent of those things that are not barriers, right? So when you talk about music, we don't need language to share that. Mm -hmm. When you talk about spirituality, we don't need language to share that. Fashion, hair, all of those things, we don't need language to share that. And I know I brought up Uju Anya's book, but I'm also thinking about, and I'm going to have to research her name because I always want to think about how local this brilliance is. There's a researcher, anthropologist out of East Orange who sat on the council um, at, the, at the United Nations. It was in 2001, they meant to have this like global acknowledgement of like, you know, the, the terrors of chattel slavery. It was supposed to be a global acknowledgement coming out of the UN. And this, I'm gonna have to find her name. She's a, a East Orange born and bred black woman, anthropologist researcher who 
her whole work and she did um, documentaries, right? So it's very accessible scholarship connecting all the things that they're doing on the continent and around the world that we do right here in Newark, mm. that we do right here in Jersey City. And so from the linguist perspective, that work has been done as well, right? It's not just anthropological, but we're talking about accessibility and it's a much longer road towards eradicating these ridiculous standards that prioritize what we call a prescriptivist language as opposed to descriptivist language. Like what we do with language came long before there was a grammar book. What is done with language came long before there were dictionaries. So what we're really doing is looking backwards and describing it. But what the field of linguistics wants us to believe that we're doing oftentimes is that we must learn language by following the prescription. That's never how language worked. So why are we trying to impose that on people now? Because that doesn't even feel how like immersion works, right? Like it's the culture that that pulls all of the levers and the triggers for you to actually then engage the language because you, you know, you want to, you know, understand the blessing of the food at the dinner table with your host family and you want to understand why the why these folks sit over here and those folks sit over there and you want to know what the word is for that smell that's in the house or that seasoning that's there right like it's the culture piece that makes you actually remember the words like you can come you know how do you say blue come and say dice come say everything <laughs> microphone or whatever all day long but it's not about you know you can't just wrote memorize the whole dictionary you're gonna have to have cues by the time that you write the dictionary it's already old yeah and that i mean even hmm, there's so much here uh dr tasha austin before we go and I want to keep having this conversation as I mentioned and I'm th thankful to you that you're going to be bringing this kind of back and forth into Nubia appreciate you for that if people are listening and there are a lot of folk listening with their young people uh, of all ages as young as uh, children you know 8, 9, 10, 15 in cars right now or at home because their parents are making them forcing them to listen to me thank y'all um, <laughs> how wh what would you recommend as an entry point um, in which language and why? Mm. Um, well, I would definitely recommend something that you can get immersed in right where you are. Um, I don't want money to, to inhibit anyone from accessing the world around them and it shouldn't, we have the internet, right? So, so for me, because Spanish was so prevalent around me, I went outside to use it, but that might not be your situation. You might be sitting in a town that doesn't have a lot of linguistic diversity, but are there a lot of shows on Netflix? Is there a station you could tune into and listen to the music? Like there are other ways to immerse yourself that sometimes folks discount and there's no need to discount it because you don't just layer it on with accessibility, you layer it on with interest and purpose. So maybe I have less accessibility to Portuguese around me, but my interest and my connectedness, now that I recognize that Brazil has the second most Africans in the country after Nigeria, that's going to mitigate the, the, the level of, you know, um, ability I have to advance in the language. So I would say those two things should really be how you determine what you're going to get into, because I, I would never say 
Spanish because so many people speak it in the world. Chinese because so many people speak it in the world. It's, it's not enough, right? It, it's not just how many, it's who. Right. And it's not just who, but it's where and yeah. how. So it's gonna have to be between purpose and accessibility. And also don't limit yourself to the archaic modes of language. Like if I can't write it and read it, language is much more expansive than those two modes. You have to interpret it, right? So you have to take it in through your ears, through your eyes, it's multimodal. You're gonna have to really make it much bigger than maybe what you've been exposed to in school. Don't limit yourself to the, I have to just read it and write it. I, I need to speak a language where my humor can come through. Because <laughs> you know, I always, you know, you go to this place and there's a lot of uh, sarcasm in my actual personality, which might not translate well. It doesn't work on Twitter. I know that for a fact. So I don't even bother y'all, y'all sensitive asses. But I want to <laughs> be able to be, you know, cheeky in another language. So I was thinking Spanish and I wanted to spend time. So when you traveled to Spain, you were in, you were in Spain for how how long? Eight, a, year. Years? I lived there a year. A year. No, no. I lived there okay. just for the year, yeah. What did, what did you learn that you know, was it something place you go? <laughs> she was like, Mm-mm. was it a place that we should go? No, we shouldn't go back. Drew's about well, to go there. I mean, listen, Spain is beautiful. And if you know yourself, like you can be grounded in yourself and that changes the way that you experience things. So I have to say that because at 19 coming out of WI and coming out of a high school that was like brown supremacist rather than white supremacist, right? So (laughs) we don't want to talk about those layers. We don't want to talk about the fact that there's like white Spanish speakers, white French, like- I always confront the Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, and all. I'm like, they they don't think you're you're Spanish. They're European. They don't look at you as one of them. Y'all better wake the hell up. You want to be close to that. They're never going to accept you. So I'm not black. I'm not black. I'm not black. But then what are you? Because the Spanish people who speak that Castilian Spanish in Spain, they see you as black. So y'all better come on over. You better come on home. Stop playing. I mean, it's it's real. And so for me, when I think about to the extent of like, like, what should I study and where can I go and how to. Again, I do think it's accessible to do right here stateside. And it's not because I don't advocate that people travel. Travel as much as you can. Go all the places, right? But me going to Puerto Rico on purpose and doing the research prior of where is the blackest place in Puerto Rico and then going to Louisa, like that took a lot of time, effort and resources that not everybody has. And so maybe going to Louisa in Puerto Rico was gonna make you feel like, yes, I'm here. But if you've got to make it a 10 year plan, you might run out of that fervor Mm, before mm. you get there. So I'm always going to be somebody to encourage, like, look around you, figure out where these pockets in these neighborhoods are right here. Right. Because then at that point, it's not such a long and distant goal that maybe your motivation gets squelched before you ever really get to give yourself a chance. And for parents, there are tons of ethno, what we call in uh, democ- um, demographics is like ethnoburbs all over. You would be surprised at how many um, at how many Spanish speaking communities or um, or how many, you know, uh, Tagalog speaking communities there are in your in your city. Like Atlanta has a ton of ethnoburbs you know that we call them where you know you might not be able to afford to send your kid to puerto rico or to spain or to cuba or to um you know or to brazil if they're learning trying to learn portuguese or whatever but you could spend saturday you know in little havana 
um, where you could spit, you know, and just let your, you know, let your kid use their use their language to to be your tour guide in that neighborhood, right? Like, there's a lot that that we can that we can do as workarounds too. And your proximity to those places, because Tagalog is what my best friend speaks. She's Filipina, and mm -hmm. so Tagalog speakers also will then just just being just being open, right? Because sometimes we just kind of turn our ears off. The one thing you'll hear like monolingual folks say very regularly is like that noise or it sounds like bit of bit of bit of like, you know, there's always this interpretation that it's nonsense or gibberish. But if you can kind of reduce the responsibility and Nelson Flores talks about this, he's a huge scholar in terms of what he calls the white listening subject. You're always trying to adjust your linguistic output for this uh, ethereal white listening subject, even when there's no white folks around, right? So whiteness as an ideology, you're always trying to put out some kind of standardized or perfect um, linguistic output. And at the end of the day, it's the receiver's responsibility to make sense of what they're interpreting as much as it is the person who is putting out the output. And the reason that I say that is, once you kind of let down that wall within you that says, this is America, or everybody here speaks English, why are you speaking that language? You'd be surprised at how like the nonsensical way that it's coming across to you will begin to dissipate and you'll notice little things. So I noticed, for example, before studying it, how much Spanish is in Tagalog. Interesting. Why? Because of Spain, the Philippines, right. <clears throat> ah. I love it. All right, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico. Hey, oh. I love. I love. Do you love Puerto Rico as much as we, we should love? Like I feel when I went to Puerto Rico, I felt like they knew who they were. The Puerto Ricans that I ran into, like they knew their African influence, they knew that their Taino indigenous influence. They didn't lean heavily into. I'm I'm white, and I actually got called a gringo. I was like, oh, that's funny. Yeah. Somebody, somebody call me a gringo. All right. All right. right. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for being a gringo. Not really. Not at all. I'm, I'm going to fight you. But so what, what was your experience uh, there, Dr. Austin? I think the cool thing, and I'm continuing to explore this. This is something I'm theorizing. The cool thing about being in Puerto Rico and the funny thing about a lot of my friends being Puerto Rican or Filipino is that that colonial orientation and it's, I think it's kind of interesting when you uh, belong, but you don't. And I feel like there's something about that relationship that Black folks understand and that Black folks connect with very quickly, right? So it's like, oh, you're Puerto Rican, you're American, but actually you, you nobody understands you speak English. Like this selective inclusion of folks, right? Who um, from the outside, maybe it's, they get the respect of being associated with the empire, but we know what's up. And so the people I came up with, Puerto Ricans, Filipinos, for the most part, like we, we, I can rock with them because they get it, right? And I do think there is diversity within all of these things. I, I don't wanna do a broad brush about it. Even when we talk about Mexican versus Colombian Spanish, that's not the same. There's a whole bunch of different ways to use Spanish within Colombia, within Mexico. Same way if somebody said to us, oh, you speak English, but then we know right here, if I was talking to somebody from New Orleans, I might not even understand them. If I was talking to a white versus a black person in New Orleans, I'm, you know, so there is diversity like within the varieties and all of that. So I, I wanna not come off as just kind of generalizing everyone, but I definitely have noticed as well, that level of connection 
of folks just seeming like they understand that um, colonial relationship with the empire. And within, within those communities as well, just as I've experienced within the black community, there's still hierarchies, right? There's still colorism within the Puerto Rican community, the Filipino community, and linguistically, right? Like how, but are you speaking proper Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. Folks who speak Spanish will police one another about how proper their Spanish is the same way that within this empire, folks will say, oh, you talk hood, or you, why are you, you dropping the NZ? Like we, we police each other. It's the internalized colonial mindset that keeps us kind of pushing for this level of recognition as fully human. And so when I, when I have pulled and had folks who are of Puerto Rican descent or, or Filipino close to me, typically they get in in a very deep way that I connect with. Have you ever been in a situation where people didn't know that you spoke the, a language and they said some swift things and then you hit them with the I know I'm being really um, inappropriate right now, but you know what I'm saying without uh, I did not erase, hit them with that. Erase, erase the inappropriateness. No. Um, yeah, so that happened. And again, it happened before I would say more of this awakening that I've had that took me a really long time. When I say resentment, like I'm a Leo. I hold on to things in a way that's probably not healthy. <laughs> <laughs> to be a whole grown person and to know I've been walking around this world, like it, I'm embarrassed to know that it took me to get to the doctoral level to realize that I'm looking for language and culture outside of myself. How dare you? Like I got a bone to pick with public schools. I got a bone to pick with language education. Um, but all throughout that time when I, again, was not enlightened in that way, I would be in spaces primarily getting a doobie, primarily in the Dominican hair salon. And I have a friend who publishes about that, Dr. Aris Clemens. She talks about that Black Dominican boundary difference, um, which is incredible work. But yeah, listen, what, you know what a phrase I learned real fast? Just se me rompió el painting. And any of your listeners are cracking up right now because I sat down in the chair and she said, my comb already broke. <sighs> I'm hurt. She said that. And what did you say? I just sank and shrank and just, I just wanted to disappear. I waited until she was done because again, pre-medicine. Oh, yeah, you are, you want your hair done well, right? <laughs> what? I'm yes. about to have you put stuff in my hair because I'm, so I waited for the whole thing to be done. And then I gave it to her. And I said, by the way, when you advertise on the outside that you do all hair types, you need to change that. That's inaccurate and on and on and on. So you didn't respond to her in Spanish? Oh, in Spanish, I did. I oh. did to her and I told and and it's not only been like so that's like 20 years ago because I don't even go get blowouts and whatnot anymore but as recently as this year it happened again I was uh, at a conference we were celebrating you know I finished my degree a friend of mine retired Puerto Rican actually he retired and so the server comes and it's a swanky restaurant right so the server comes and so my my friend noticed he had a Spanish accent so he immediately switched to Spanish with him and the server kindly returned English to him. And in that moment, my friend sat back like, oh, I see what it is, right? So he's trying to kind of like come on that level of, you know, a little bit of cultural connection. And he was this not having it harshly. So when the server left, we were like, whoa, you know, it's crazy. So then behind my and his back are two other friends told the server, we're celebrating them he's retiring and she got her doctorate. So they, you know, to bring out this on fire cake thing. All right. 
So he comes back and they had asked, or, or rather he had asked, what are we celebrating? And they said, he, his retirement and she, her doctorate. So he comes out, we're all surprised, the fire. And he comes only to me and goes, and what are you celebrating? And so I said, my doctorate. Now, mind you, this was a surprise. So in my mind, I wasn't like, they told you, how dare you ask me again? I was just like excited, right? right. And so earlier in the night, there was something on the menu that I was making fun of linguistically because I'm a nerd for languages and I mispronounced it on purpose. And he came by and he pronounced it correctly for me. And I was like, I was joking. And he was like, oh, good, because I thought you couldn't read. The server. Wait, the server. The server. You serving. He was serving, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Blackness. Seven seven different platters. Oh, my gosh. When he finally came out with that on fire whatever and made me answer him again, didn't ask my friend what he was celebrating, just me. After I said I'm getting my, I got my doctorate. I said, y pa que tú lo sepas, si yo hablo español también. And everybody at the table fell out and he turned six different colors. Because I said, and just so you know, I also speak Spanish. Mm. And so in that moment, because again, like there's a, there's a difference That's before your awakening, right? Where you just, you feel small, that shame, that shame mm-hmm. that the guy tweeted about, mm-hmm. the shame that Lindsay was talking about, that shame sits on you heavy. And Mm -hmm. most of your effort goes towards proving something Mm -hmm. as opposed to kind of like standing up for yourself and putting people in their place. But I was on the other side. That's what I want. That's the power I want to be in an elevator. Mm -hmm. I wish somebody would say something. Mm -hmm. And then I'll be like, I know. I'm just saying. Listen, listen, Tasha. So can you say my comb broke? My comb already broke again. One more time. No, that's traumatic for me. No, right. I just want to hear the words so I can recognize them. Se me rompió el peine. I can, I, I can write it out for yeah, you. Yeah, write it phonetically because then you rolled an R. I saw. I Not a it. whole world know that, that, okay. that people got their combs breaking. In I my know, head. but people, I, I need us to know when somebody talking about you, your comb breaking so you can make an informed decision that I'm not going to let this chick do my hair. I'm going to go natural. In this moment, and I'm just gonna have an afro this weekend because she ain't getting my money because she want to talk about a cone break and kiss my ass. That's what I need people to be able to do. And right. then for In them to have their face broke, like "Bese me culo," give me my money back, and I'm out. That's what I feel right. like should be said. Did I, I wish say you that correctly? That's all. So get right that phonetically so I can roll my R's on that one. Shoot. <laughs> all right. Uh, Tasha, Tasha Austin, thank you for, for being here. Um, we are going to continue this conversation off mic in Nubia back here. This was fun, man. I think I'm going to learn Spanish. All right. She thank said, you. Se, you se me having... rompió el peña. Did I say peine, that? Peine, peine. Peine? Okay. Yeah, se I me rompió, se me rompió el peine. 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 Okay. Like pasta. All right. My coma. Peine. Peine. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that.